Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the first in my fourth and last series as Gresham Professor of Music. I feel really as though I've only just started, but nonetheless, it's coming to an end. Welcome back. I recognize, as I have had cause to say before, I recognize many of you. It's good to see you again. I hope you had a good summer. And those of you whom I've not met, I'd be delighted to speak to afterwards if there were anything of any interest in the lecture that you'd like to discuss with me, or if you'd like to see the replicas of early guitars that are here with me. But before I go any further, I'd like to introduce the player who's going to play for us today, ladies and gentlemen, Ulrich Wedemeyer. Well, the title of this series, let me have a look at it, see what it is, <laughs> is Courtis for courtesan, queen and gallant, the guitar in England from Henry VIII to Samuel Pepys. And as so often when I've given Gresham lectures in the past, I've managed to get a cold before doing this one, as perhaps many of you have. If I have what you might call, I suppose everyone is now going to call a Theresa May moment, Please, you know, give me a cough suite, and, uh, but not a P45. That I don't want. So today, obviously, this, this, the first in this series of lectures about the guitar in the 16th and 17th century is, of course, a niche interest. I appreciate that. But one of the reasons why I've chosen it is I believe, with perhaps uh, overweening confidence, that I can show you that it is an instrument associated with some light and very beautiful music, and music of surprising interest, in fact, and complexity. But that also there's a great deal of historical interest and social interest. Well, in recent years, perhaps you agree with me that we've learnt a lot, perhaps rather too much, about the ways in which governments spy on us, intercept our private messages, as it may be, and eavesdrop on our conversations. Well, there's nothing very new about that. In 1587, one friend warned another to keep his letters close, for craft and malice never reigned more. Well, that writer meant, I think, the craft and malice of government spies above all others. And indeed, anyone who sent a letter on personal or indeed political business under the Tudor kings and queens had some reason to fear those villains and opportunists who stood in the shadows, those government agents. And as a result, many people resorted to ciphers and codes to keep their messages secret. They did all sorts of things wrote their messages on black pieces of paper and hid them in the dark corners of privies. That's just the start. Well, in the winter of 1553-4, a courtier devised a method that was decidedly original, even by the standards of Elizabethan subterfuge and spying. The Catholic Queen Mary was on the throne, and there were dark rumours of Protestant plots. One courtier... Edward Courtney, found himself the rallying point for a number of conspiracies. He was certainly being watched. So he took a guitar, or as it was commonly called in Tudor English, a gitern, and had it inscribed with a cipher known only to his associate. Now who knows what that cipher conveyed? The address for a clandestine meeting, perhaps, somewhere in the alleys and lanes of London. A warning that the Queen's agents were becoming suspicious. Well, we can't say. I certainly can't. But what we do know is that an imperial spy, or if you prefer, an imperial ambassador, learned of the device and reported it to his master, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI. I have the original text of his report in front of me, copied from the archives in Brussels, where it now lies, and where all bureaucratic documents ultimately end up. It's, <laughs> it says that there was, and I quote, un zifre 
Taiyi Surunigitere, a cipher carved on a guitar. Well, the device was all the more cunning because it actually wasn't unusual at that time to inscribe guitars in that way. There's a poem by the, one of the great poets of 16th century France, Ronsard, which celebrates a guitar marked with his lady's name and his own, un chiffre, in cipher. Well, that report of Edward Courtney's cipher is one of the earliest references in England to the guitar, which I presume to tell you is, as it seems to me, the most widely played instrument in the world, whether one likes that or, or not. Notice, though, that it's already up and running when we find it. The trick of the ciphered guitar really wouldn't have worked, would it, if it was a rare or extraordinary thing to see a guitar passing from hand to hand between high courtiers. The whole point is to hide the secret message in plain sight, not to attach it to something that everyone would want to handle and examine because it was novel or a curio. I mean, if you had a guitar with a secret message on it and it's a very rare thing, the danger is people are going to pick it up and say, well, that's very interesting, let me have a look, and turn it over and become perhaps suspicious. Well, the instrument that passed between Courtney and his associate was moving indeed, between two of the highest in the land. These were people of considerably exalted station. But the guitar in Tudor England was also the instrument of gentlemen of a lesser status, of the middling sort, and below that, of apprentices fleeing their masters, impoverished tricksters, alehouse wastrels. The allure of the guitar to these first players arose from the competing attractions, I think, of the polite and the disreputable, the simple and the sophisticated. All those types of people whom I've just mentioned can be found with guitars in their hands. The instrument yielded readily to players who wished to do little more than strum chords, as the guitar still does, but it could also accommodate musicians who sought a more demanding repertoire, as the guitar still can. To the higher gentry and nobility, I think, the guitar was a fashionable object with some appealingly low associations, a bit like a printed translation of Boccaccio's famously obscene Di Camerone. And to those lower down the social scale, it was a relatively inexpensive purchase, but one whose connections were enticingly select, like a pair of scented gloves newly imported from Spain. Well, at the risk of seeming to make a political point, which I don't intend, I would say that the guitar of Tudor England was in every way European. The very first trace of guitars in England appears, I think, and I'm not alone in it, in an inventory of Henry VIII's instruments drawn up by a Netherlandish lute player, and they are called there Spanish vials. There are other candidates for what those might be. I suspect they're early forms of guitar. And the finest depiction of the instrument in Tudor art, which we'll, I'll soon have the pleasure of introducing you to if you don't know it already, appears in an inlaid table produced by craftsmen who were probably Germans or Flemings serving an English patron. Uh, they were probably living in London. And the most sophisticated playing in England, as far as we can reconstruct it, was partly an emanation of French practice. It is in every way a European instrument. So what kind of instrument was the Renaissance guitar? which is the term that many of us who are specialists in these things use, the Renaissance guitar. Well, the first page of your handout <coughs> me, shows an image of a guitar taken from one of at least nine guitar books published in Paris during the 1550s. And the guitar had become fashionable in the French capital by this time, and players could buy some first-rate music, as we'll soon be hearing. 
I hope you agree with me that the instrument shown is recognizably a guitar. It has the characteristic figure of eight shape and the round aperture in the middle, but filled with decorative fretwork called a rose. There are frets along the neck and a string holder on the soundboard, that thing that is holding the strings and simultaneously creating the point where their vibrations begin at that point. But there are also some unfamiliar features. Notice that the strings are arranged in pairs, as they were on the contemporary lute, save the highest, which is single. And that's because it was very difficult to get strings of fine gut, which of course is what the strings were made of, sheep gut. There's never been any such thing as cat gut, by the way, but that's a long story. It's very difficult to get very fine pieces of gut, which when you begin to press them against the frets higher up the instrument, render the same note. They go out of tune with one another, gut being an organic material. So that makes three pairs of strings and one single, seven altogether. Finally, though you can't really tell this from the picture, the instrument is much smaller than the standard modern classical guitar. This is how small. This is a replica made by Alexander Batov of Lewis in Sussex of more or less the guitar you see in the picture before you. And you can see that it's roughly which is perhaps a little bit larger, maybe, than a baritone ukulele, or about the same as a baritone ukulele. What's more, while you might imagine that the instrument I'm holding is probably the most recondite and out-of-the-way instrument you're going to see this week, this month, this year, maybe in your life, this is a baritone ukulele. The tuning of the Renaissance guitar is virtually identical to the tuning of a baritone ukulele, and indeed, the thousands, the tens of thousands of people who now play ukuleles and buy them, you see them hanging in virtually every music shop, are playing Renaissance guitars without knowing it. And in fact, the tuning is the same. Indeed, this instrument would be perfect for the songs not only of the 16th century, but of George Formby. So completely is this essentially a ukulele. Well, it's time to hear some rather more, perhaps, sophisticated music <laughs> than I've just given you from one of those uh, Parisian guitar books. Uli is going to play you two pieces from the collection published by the firm of Adrian Leroy in Paris. He's going to play a Fantasie and then an Allemande. Now, the first is a substantial and free composition and I think we'll suggest to you the ambitions that players conceive for what is, in effect, I repeat it, a baritone ukulele. I, I'm not sure that I can think of a demonstration of Renaissance inventiveness and wit more apparent to me than what I perceive when I hear what the composer of this piece does with this very simple, you might think very limited, instrument of just four strings. The second item is a dance piece, an Allemande, and as Uli plays it, you'll hear a standard 16th century technique where the music is played once, then played in a more elaborate manner, or as contemporary players would have said, with divisions.
did it mean, do you suppose, to an Elizabethan courtier to play that instrument? Well, by way of answer, we can turn to a gentleman named Robert Langham. He was the author of a letter that he wrote in 1575 about the celebrations staged at Kenilworth Castle by Robert Dudley for Queen Elizabeth. According to Langham's account in this letter, he passed his time in Lady Sidney's chamber and was always among the gentlewomen. And the next passage of his letter is at the base of page one of your handout. And Langham was one of many people at this period who was fascinated, strange as you may think it, by spelling and the issue of how English spelling could be modified in ways that would make it more rational and more reflective of the way one actually spoke. So the spelling, which may look strange, is strange. It's not even standard to the extent that there was standard Elizabethan spelling. It's his own form of spelling. So he presumably said something along these lines, but you'll see what the meaning is easily. Sometime I foot it with dancing, now with my guitar, and else with my citern, then at the virginals. You can know nothing comes amiss to me, then carol I up a song withal, that by and by they come flocking about me like bays to honey. And ever they cry, another good Langham, another. Well, Langham was a mercer who became keeper of the Privy Council chamber from 1572 until his death. And it's a, actually a spectacularly uninteresting position to hold, despite the sound of it. He had to provide flowers, cushions, fire shovels. That must have hurt a man who thought himself... Um, apt to be in Lady Sydney's chamber, for example, fire shovels, tongs and bellows for the council meetings, for the fire. But despite that, you can see that he claims some very distinguished company for himself, including Robert Dudley's sister, Mary Sydney. And even when he wasn't moving in such exalted circles, he spent his evenings, so he claims, with the gentlewomen, where his dancing, singing and performances on the guitar or guitar had them crowding round him and calling for more. Another good Langham, another, or so he claims. The search for Elizabethan images of guitars in paintings, as it may be, or embroidery or sculpture, proves to be, I have to tell you, quite a task. Depictions of musical instruments on the walls, ceilings, or stairways of Elizabethan houses as they now are, are considerably less common than the ghosts who are said to haunt the rooms. No doubt, I imagine, those unhappy spirits are grieving for the destruction of what was once their homes. Many houses built during the Elizabethan age passed to inheritors or to descendants and buyers who decided that the Tudor fixtures had, in Shakespeare's phrase, outstood their time and should be removed. So the history of English domestic building after the death of Elizabeth in 1603 is often a sorry tale of destruction by inheritors who had only a qualified regard for architecture deemed to be Elizabethan, a term you won't find much before the beginning of the 19th century. To an eye of the 18th century of that period, accustomed to landscaped gardens, Tudor mansions seemed to give scant attention to the beauty of landscape. And in an age of floor carpets like the 18th century, the houses felt cold and drafty. Some of you may know the wonderful passage in the comic novel Three Men in a Boat, where a gentleman buys a hat in a hat shop and actually pays for it there and then. The hat maker, thinking that this sort of thing should be encouraged, says to him, would you like to see some Elizabethan panelling? And the purchaser says, yes, well, I rather would. And they go upstairs and the buyer is shown into a room which is bright blue. It's bright blue wallpaper. And the hat maker who owns the house goes up to the wall and knocks it and it gives, returns the sound of wood. Elizabethan panelling, he says proudly, all the way round, but it was awfully dull. So I covered it up with wallpaper. And I suspect that though that story is a comic story that um, 
Jerome K. Jerome presumably invented, it has at the heart of it, unfortunately, a sorry truth. Whatever seemed antiquated or useless was liable to be demolished or rebuilt, if funds allowed in contemporary taste, carved screens removed, wall paintings covered, panels taken down, all the rest of it. On the second page of your handout, you'll see the Elizabethan house at Appledurcombe on the Isle of Wight, which was drawn by Sir Richard Worsley in 1720 when he inherited it. His proud boast was that he had, and I quote, left not one stone standing of the entire building that you see there. But all is not lost, and I have the chance, as I said earlier, to introduce you now to one of the most spectacular pieces of Elizabethan art, if you don't already know it. The most lavish depiction of a guitar from 16th century Europe, and as far as I know, sorry, 16th century England, and as far as I know, from 16th century Europe, appears on the Eglantine table, which is now in the late Elizabethan mansion of Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire. Many of you may have visited it. The table was made for Elizabeth of Shrewsbury, better known as Bess of Hardwick. And in 1567, this much-married lady married again. Her fourth husband, George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, and the table was probably made to commemorate their union. The second page of your handout shows, as the second item, a 19th century um, sketch of the decorative scheme of the table. And you can see there, it's absolutely covered in representations of Elizabethan musical instruments, some of which are, I think, life-size, uh, shown in great detail, if not always, with the greatest accuracy. There's a guitar which appears at the bottom left, surrounded by playing cards, and looking along the same row, you'll find uh, what I take to be a vial, though the world expert on Tudor vials, a friend of mine, is in, is in the room, and I appreciate the need to be careful. I take it that it's a vial rather than a large, fretted Elizabethan violin. All around are more playing cards and gaming tables. If you skip over the middle file, which is, as it were, purely decorative, but magnificently so, and begin to scan from top left, there are various wind instruments, then another vial or fretted violin. Immediately next to it, believe it or not, is a representation in marquetry of the beginning of a four-part anthem by Thomas Tallis, O Lord, in thee is all my trust. Then there's a harp, a lute, a set of bagpipes, more music, some wind instruments, and a cittern. It is altogether a most extraordinary thing, and I hope if you are in that corner of England, you won't fail to have a look at it. The result is a lavish emblem of harmony and nuptial concord, but also a reminder of the sounds that could be heard in the life of a great house, during a procession to dinner, perhaps, or when musicians came to the door on New Year's morning. And the third page of your handout at the top shows the guitar in greater detail and in colour in a photograph by Marzena Pogutsawi, to whom I'm really very, very grateful indeed. You can see that it's got the, the requisite seven strings. In some respects, it's a rather odd-looking guitar. The, the central rose is not quite where you'd expect it to be, and the number of frets is wrong, and the spacing is wrong. As I say, the... The, this is, these are not photographs of Elizabethan instruments, but they are, in many ways, nonetheless very remarkable. If the guitar is life-size, by the way, it's really very small. It's even smaller than the, the replica I've got here. Well, the table draws, I think, on many sources, some of which I would think include uh, the two-dimensional imagery of Elizabethan embroidery, which was, in some respects, still resolutely late medieval in style, as a lot of Elizabethan art is. Other models presumably include the work of the Italian and intarsiatori, the craftsmen in marquetry, who very early on, I mean, in the later 15th century, were exploiting uh, the, the, the representation of perspective and three-dimensional objects with tremendous expertise, including musical instruments. But I think the immediate explanation for the quality of this table I've already hinted at, it lies with the craftsmen in wood, immigrants from Germany and the Low Countries, traceable in England during the later 16th century. Most of them lived south of the Thames in Southwark, where they could escape regulation from the city of London. The sheer quantity of these people 
many of them listed by name in the records of the so-called alien churches, churches of foreigners and immigrants and those who are not citizens of London, is really remarkable. They're listed as joiners, cabinet makers, turners, and their place of origin is given as Flanders, Brabant, Germany, Cologne, among other locations in Northern Europe. So I think one could ask of the Eglantine table, as, as of some other great examples of, of Elizabethan furniture, where could such a confection have been made except in London, and where in London, other than the liberty known as Southwark, were the expelled talents of Flanders, Holland, and Northwest Germany gathered? Well, for our next piece, we're going to go to Spain, traditional home, of course, of the guitar. The English are perhaps alone amongst those in Europe who still speak of the Spanish guitar. There was a time when the Italians did that. There was a time when the French did that. But uh, in those languages now, French people don't call the guitar that we call the Spanish guitar la guitare espagnole. They don't say that anymore, as far as I know. We're going to hear two pieces by Alonso Mudara, and they were published in 1546. This is really very delicate and intricate, considered music. And indeed, I suppose if there is one thing that I would get a, try to get across to you about the music for this instrument, is that it really is a miniature lute. That's the technique that you use. Uh, Uli is a professional lutenist. That explains the excellence of his touch, I think, on the four-course guitar. And the notion that the, the guitar is a diminutif du lute is something that a, a French author of the 1560s actually says. The guitar is a small lute. And the ideal of the music, the counterpoint, the intricacy, is shared between the big instrument and its smaller sister. Two pieces by Alonso Modara.
That last piece was using a chord sequence called the Romanesca, which Uli was strumming at the very end. And you may just have heard the ghost of Greensleeves in that, because the melody that we know, the, you know, the is just a melody over that ground. Well, who was playing the guitar in Tudor England beyond the court? Well, there are various kinds of source that do actually answer that question. Thanks to a letter, for example, written by a warden of the Tower of London, we know that prisoners taking exercise in that grim fortress or sitting at their table by an arrow-slit window could hear the sound of a fellow captive playing the guitar in 1562. I'll return to him uh, next time I address you, uh, to, and I'll show you the document to test your skills and mine in reading Elizabethan handwriting. Several decades later, visitors to the house of Dennis Buck, a yeoman in the Norfolk village of Great Walsingham, could catch the sound of a guitar beneath the cries of the geese that were loose in his yard. And if you're wondering how we know that, the answer is that we just have to look in the inventory of his goods prepared in 1584 after his death for purposes of probate. Now, perhaps many of you have used documents of this sort yourself to investigate family history, the, in the inventories of people's property that were compiled for probate. Um, I must say, for myself, I find them a most, uh, to be a, among the most engaging and often moving documents. There are many thousands of them in county record offices, the great majority of them unpublished, and they're an unrivaled source, as you can imagine, for material culture, or to put it more feelingly, for the things that people needed, together with the things they did not need, but wanted and perhaps even loved. Dennis Buck's inventory lists his money in ready cash, then, as such inventories do, walks us through his house. We start in the parlour chamber with bedding, a warming pan for the cold Norfolk nights of winter, some stools, a reminder that a chair was something to aspire to in 1584, at least if you were a Norfolk yeoman, and finally a guitar valued at a shilling. It can't have been a very splendid example, I should think. But they often were that cheap. Well, what would such a man play on his instrument? Well, I have to tell you, I wish I knew. We only have, after all, what is printed or copied in manuscript, and much of that is French, though the Parisian guitar books we're drawing upon today were certainly known and used in England. Now, in case you're wondering, because in my experience, people are often curious to know what the music they hear up here actually looks like in its original state. Well, I've given you an example of some on the third page of your handout. This is an example of tablature for the four-course guitar. The four lines are, of course, the four strings, not uh, stave lines. The letters indicate the frets, so the open strings, letter A, first fret, letter B, and so on. The little flags indicate the rhythm. The dot under some piles of letters mean don't use the thumb. And the little oblique stroke means hold all these notes down for the course of this measure. It really tells you a lot. <coughs> Excuse me. So now I'm going to ask Uli to play a prelude followed by the piece that you can see there the one we've just been examining. The prelude is a free composition, and the second is a dance piece, the one we're looking at, the first Braune de Bourgogne.
if you were looking at the tablature, and if you can read that tablature, you'll see that Uli was playing the notes and some notes that aren't in the tablature, because like a proper Renaissance musician, he was adding divisions. That's what makes him the artist he is. Now, looking more closely at London for our last 10 minutes or so, I'd like to introduce you to a Tudor musician who wrote an autobiography. The very existence of that text was unknown, really, until 1955. His name is Thomas Whitehorn, and he was, to say the least, very interested in himself. In 1569, he commissioned a portrait when he was about 40, in which he proudly displays his coat of arms. And in literary terms, his great act of self-presentation was a book of songs and sonnets, a substantial collection of the verse that he wrote for his published compositions, together with other poetry, connected by an extensive uh, autobiographical narrative. The, man the, work is, uh, the manuscript of this came to light, as I say, really only about a generation ago, and is in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, where, I, where I've handled it and seen it. Since Whitehorn has so much to tell us about himself, let's look a little a bit at what he has to say. At the age of 10, he was sent from his father's house in Ilminster, Somerset, which some of you may know, to the household of a relative near Oxford, which many of you will know. He settled with one of his uncles and then showed an interest in music rather than the church, medicine or law, and his uncle approved of that which is perhaps unexpected. So in 1538, he entered Magdalen College School and remained there as a chorister. By 1545, he was a, a pupil in the household of the musician and dramatist John Haywood. And according to Whitehorn's own account, and using the spelling, here's another one of those spelling inventors, and using the spelling he devised to represent his speech, he, was, he records that he was to become Haywood's servant and scholar. You have his text on the fourth page of the handout as extract one. Whitehorn admired Haywood because, and this is where the extract begins, he was not only very well skilled in music and playing on the virginals, but also such an English poet as the like, for his wit and invention was not as then in England, nor before his time since Chaucer's time. By the time Whitehorn left Haywood's service after three years and more, probably in 1547, he was on his own and was required to secure an income and a reputation. So for company, he looked to what he calls young folks and gentlemen who are probably to be identified with the better kinds of London apprentice and the sons of gentry at the inns of court. And to cultivate the sportive pursuits that they favoured, he joined schools of fencing and dancing in London. And there you have the second extract. I, being then desirous to have and enrich myself with some more such exercises and qualities as young folks for the most do delight in, went to the dancing school and fence school. You notice that Whitehorn spells uh, the G in the I-N-G ending, dancing. He obviously did say it, as of course many people in England still do. You can hear singing. I've been singing all day uh, from many people who come from certain parts of, of England. Whitehorn had learned the lute and virginals during his period of apprentice with Haywood. So his musical accomplishments, I'm sure, put him well ahead of his peers, but he planned to use those instruments to earn his livelihood, and that brought him dangerously close to minstrelsy and the associated state of vagabondage. During the early to mid-1570s, uh, the Elizabethan government was much concerned with legislation against minstrels, the reformed Protestant religion did not accommodate itself always easily to many of the old pastimes. The minstrels, rather than mass priests, proved to be the Protestant preacher's principal enemy. Whitehorn had no choice but to recognize that he did belong with those who used music, and I quote him, to further their livings thereby, like any minstrel. So, upon his arrival in London, he decided it was time to learn two instruments associated with a free and a companionable amateurism, the guitar and its wire-strung relative, the sittern. And that's extract three. Whitehorn says that he learned to play on the gitarn and sittern, which tour instruments were then strange in England, and therefore the more desired and esteemed. The word strange there, um, means, of course, not strange in our sense, but foreign, as in French, uh, étranger, 
meaning a, a foreigner or from a foreign country, ultimately a Latin word. So uh, the, the instrument seemed foreign, I suspect especially French, but perhaps also Spanish. Well, the social aspect of Whitehorn's decision to play these instruments, but especially the guitar, was clearly of prime importance to him, and that you see that from extract four, the last one. Mastery of the guitar helped him to rank as a gentleman. And I'll translate this one. The which instrument, the guitar, as a sitting mate, lying mate, and walking mate, I then used to play on very often, yea, and almost every hour of the day, for that it was an instrument much esteemed and used of gentlemen, and of the best sort in those days. Notice that last phrase, the best sort in those days. That expression, best sort, belonged to a vocabulary of social discrimination that was relatively new in Whitehorn's day. It meant those who were deemed fit to serve on juries or to be buried within parish churches because they were prominent and respected in their communities. A superiority of experience and authority and wealth that had been earned, not inherited. And with such people, the history of the guitar, which could never have flourished long, I think, in the hands of courtiers alone, really begins. And I'd like to close with Uli playing you a gaillarde by the French composer of the 1550s, Guillaume Morlet. This was published in Paris in the middle of that decade. <laughs> 